0: The Kreutzer Sonata by Leo Tolstoy Chapter Twenty-Two. I did not speak to her all that day. I could not. Nearness to her aroused in me such hatred of her that I was afraid of myself. At dinner, in the presence of the children, she asked me when I was going away. I had to go next week to the district meetings of the Zemstvo. I told her the date. She asked whether I did not want anything for the journey. I did not answer, but sat silent at table, and then went in silence to my study. Latterly, she used never to come to my room, especially not at that time of day. I lay in my study filled with anger. Suddenly, I heard her familiar step, and the terrible, monstrous idea entered my head that she, like Uriah's wife, wished to conceal the sin she had already committed, and that that was why she was coming to me at such an unusual time. Can she be coming to me, thought I, listening to her approaching footsteps? If she is coming here, then I am right, and an inexpressible hatred of her took possession of me. Nearer and nearer came the steps. Is it possible that she won't pass on to the dancing room? No, the door creaks, and in the doorway appears her tall, handsome figure, on her face and in her eyes a timid, ingratiating look, which she tries to hide, but which I see, and the meaning of which I know. I almost choked, so long did I hold my breath, and still looking at her, I grasped my cigarette case and began to smoke. Now how can you? One comes to sit with you for a bit, and you begin smoking— "'and she sat down close to me on the sofa, leaning against me. "'I moved away so as not to touch her. "'I see you are dissatisfied at my wanting to play on Sunday,' she said. "'I am not at all dissatisfied,' I said. "'As if I don't see. "'Well, I congratulate you on seeing, "'but I only see that you behave like a coquette. "'You always find pleasure in all kinds of vileness,' "'but to me it is terrible. "'Oh, well, if you are going to scold like a cabman, I'll go away. "'Do, but remember that if you don't value the family honor, "'I value not you, devil take you, but the honor of the family. "'But what is the matter? What? "'Go away, for God's sake, be off.' "'Whether she pretended not to understand what it was about,' or really did not understand. At any rate, she took offense, grew angry, and did not go away, but stood in the middle of the room. "'You have really become impossible,' she began. "'You have a character that even an angel could not put up with.' And as usual, trying to sting me as painfully as possible, she reminded me of my conduct to my sister, an incident when, being exasperated, I said rude things to my sister." She knew I was distressed about it, and she stung me just on that spot. "'After that, nothing from you will surprise me,' she said. "'Yes, insult me, humiliate me, disgrace me, and then put the blame on me,' I said to myself. And suddenly I was seized by such terrible rage as I had never before experienced. For the first time I wished to give physical expression to that rage." I jumped up and went towards her, but just as I jumped up, I remembered becoming conscious of my rage and asking myself, is it right to give way to this feeling? And at once I answered that it was right, that it would frighten her, and instead of restraining my fury, I immediately began inflaming it still further, and was glad it burnt yet more fiercely within me. "'Be off, or I'll kill you!' I shouted." going up to her and seizing her by the arm. I consciously intensified the anger in my voice as I said this. And I suppose I was terrible, for she was so frightened that she had not even the strength to go away, but only said, "'Vasya, what is it? What is the matter with you?' "'Go!' I roared louder still. "'No one but you can drive me to fury. I do not answer for myself.' Having given reins to my rage, I reveled in it, and wished to do something still more unusual to show the extreme degree of my anger. I felt a terrible desire to beat her, to kill her, but knew that this would not do, and so, to give vent to my fury, I seized a paperweight from my table, again shouting, Go! and hurled it to the floor near her. I aimed it very exactly past her. Then she left the room, but stopped at the doorway, and immediately, while she still saw it—I did it so that she might see—I began snatching things from the table—candlesticks, an inkstand, and hurling them on the floor, still shouting, Go! Get out! I do not answer for myself! She went away, and I immediately stopped. An hour later, the nurse came to tell me that my wife was in hysterics. I went to her. She sobbed, laughed, could not speak, and her whole body was convulsed. She was not pretending, but was really ill. Towards morning she grew quiet, and we made peace under the influence of the feeling we called love. In the morning when after our reconciliation I confessed to her that I was jealous of Trukachovsky, she was not at all confused, but laughed most naturally. "'So strange did the very possibility of an infatuation for such a man seem to her,' she said. "'Could a decent woman have any other feeling for such a man than the pleasure of his music? "'Why, if you like, I am ready never to see him again, not even on Sunday, though everybody has been invited. Write and tell him that I am ill, and there's an end of it. Only it is unpleasant that anyone, especially he himself, should imagine that he is dangerous.' I am too proud to allow anyone to think that of me. And you know, she was not lying. She believed what she was saying. She hoped by those words to evoke in herself contempt for him, and so to defend herself from him. But she did not succeed in doing so. Everything was against her, especially that accursed music. So it all ended, and on the Sunday the guests assembled, and they again played together. CHAPTER Twenty Three. I suppose it is hardly necessary to say that I was very vain. If one is not vain, there is nothing to live for in our usual way of life. So on that Sunday, I arranged the dinner and the musical evening with much care. I bought the provisions myself, and invited the guests. Towards six the visitors assembled. He came in evening dress, with diamond studs that showed bad taste. He behaved in a free and easy manner, answered everything hurriedly, with a smile of agreement and understanding, you know, with that peculiar expression which seems to say that all you may do or say is just what he expected. Everything that was not in good taste about him I noticed with particular pleasure, because it ought all to have had the effect of tranquilizing me and showing me that he was so far beneath my wife, that as she had said, she could not lower herself to his level. I did not allow myself to be jealous. In the first place, I had worried through that torment, and needed rest. And secondly, I wanted to believe my wife's assurances, and did believe them. But though I was not jealous, I was nevertheless not natural with either of them. And at dinner, and during the first half of the evening, before the music began, I still followed their movements and looks. The dinner was, as dinners are, dull and pretentious. The music began pretty early. Oh, how I remember every detail of that evening. I remember how he brought in his violin, unlocked the case, took off the cover a lady had embroidered for him, drew out the violin, and began tuning it. I remember how my wife sat down at the piano with pretended unconcern, under which I saw that she was trying to conceal great timidity, chiefly as to her own ability, and then the usual A on the piano began, the pizzicato of the violin, and the arrangement of the music. Then I remember how they glanced at one another, turned to look at the audience who were seating themselves, said something to one another, and began— he took the first chords. His face grew serious, stern, and sympathetic, and listening to the sounds he produced, he touched the strings with careful fingers. The piano answered him. The music began. Poznischev paused and produced his strange sound several times in succession. He tried to speak, but sniffed and stopped. They played Beethoven's Kreutzer Sonata, he continued. Do you know the first presto? You do, he cried. Oh, it is a terrible thing, that sonata, and especially that part. And in general, music is a dreadful thing. What is it? I don't understand it. What is music? What does it do? And why does it do what it does? They say music exalts the soul. Nonsense, it is not true. It has an effect, an awful effect. I'm speaking of myself, but not of an exalting kind. It has neither an exalting nor a debasing effect, but it produces agitation. How can I put it? Music makes me forget myself, my real position, It transports me to some other position not my own. Under the influence of music, it seems to me that I feel what I do not really feel, that I understand what I do not understand, that I can do what I cannot do. I explain it by the fact that music acts like yawning, like laughter. I am not sleepy, but I yawn when I see someone yawning. There is nothing for me to laugh at, but I laugh when I hear people laughing. Music carries me immediately and directly into the mental condition in which the man was who composed it. My soul merges with his, and together with him, I pass from one condition into another. But why this happens, I don't know. You see, he who wrote, let us say, the Kreutzer Sonata, Beethoven, knew, of course, why he was in that condition. That condition caused him to do certain actions, and therefore that condition had a meaning for him. But for me, none at all. That is why music only agitates, and doesn't lead to a conclusion. Well, when a military march is played, the soldiers march to the music, and the music has achieved its object. A dance is played, I dance, and the music has achieved its object. Mass has been sung, I receive communion, and that music, too, has reached a conclusion. Otherwise, it is only agitating, and what ought to be done in that agitation is lacking. That is why music sometimes acts so dreadfully, so terribly. In China, music is a state affair, and that is as it should be. How can one allow anyone who pleases to hypnotize another, or many others, and do what he likes with them, and especially that this hypnotist should be the first immoral man who turns up? It is a terrible instrument in the hands of any chance user. Take that Kreutzer sonata, for instance. How can that first presto be played in a drawing-room among ladies in low-necked dresses? To hear that played, to clap a little, and then to eat ices and talk of the latest scandal? Such things should only be played on certain important, significant occasions, and then only when certain actions answering to such music are wanted. Play it then, and do what the music has moved you to. Otherwise, an awakening of energy and feeling, unsuited both to the time and the place, to which no outlet is given, cannot but act harmfully. At any rate, that peace had a terrible effect on me. It was as if quite new feelings, new possibilities, of which I had till then been unaware, had been revealed to me. That's how it is. Not at all as I used to think and live, but that way something seemed to say within me. What this new thing was that had been revealed to me I could not explain to myself, but the consciousness of this new condition was very joyous. All those same people, including my wife and him, appeared in a new light. After that allegro, they played the beautiful but common and unoriginal Andante with trite variations, and the very weak finale Then, at the request of the visitors, they played Ernst's Elegy and a few small pieces. They were all good, but they did not produce on me a one-hundredth part of the impression the first piece had. The effect of the first piece formed the background for them all. I felt light-hearted and cheerful the whole evening. I had never seen my wife as she was that evening. Those shining eyes— that severe, significant expression while she played, and her melting languor and feeble, pathetic, and blissful smile after they had finished. I saw all that, but did not attribute any meaning to it except that she was feeling what I felt, and that to her as to me new feelings never before experienced were revealed or, as it were, recalled. The evening ended satisfactorily and the visitors departed. Knowing that I had to go away to attend the Zemstvo meetings two days later, Trukachovsky, on leaving, said he hoped to repeat the pleasure of that evening when he next came to Moscow. From this I concluded that he did not consider it possible to come to my house during my absence, and this pleased me. It turned out that as I should not be back before he left town, we should not see one another again. For the first time, I pressed his hand with real pleasure, and thanked him for the enjoyment he had given us. In the same way, he bade a final farewell to my wife. Their leave-taking seemed to be most natural and proper. Everything was splendid. My wife and I were both very well satisfied with our evening party. Chapter 24. Two days later, I left for the meetings, parting from my wife in the best and most tranquil of moods. In the district, there was always an enormous amount to do, and a quite special life, a special little world of its own. I spent two ten-hour days at the council. A letter from my wife was brought to me on the second day, and I read it there and then. She wrote about the children, about uncle, about the nurse, about shopping— and among other things she mentioned, as a most natural occurrence, that Trukhachevsky had called, brought some music he had promised, and had offered to play again, but that she had refused. I did not remember his having promised any music, but thought he had taken leave for good, and I was therefore unpleasantly struck by this. I was, however, so busy that I had no time to think of it, and it was only in the evening, when i had returned to my lodgings that i reread her letter besides the fact that trugachevsky had called at my house during my absence the whole tone of the letter seemed to me unnatural the mad beast of jealousy began to growl in its kennel and wanted to leap out but i was afraid of that beast and quickly fastened him in what an abominable feeling this jealousy is i said to myself What could be more natural than what she writes? I went to bed and began thinking about the affairs awaiting me next day. During those meetings, sleeping in a new place, I usually slept badly. But now I fell asleep very quickly. And as sometimes happens, you know, you feel a kind of electric shock and wake up. So I awoke thinking of her, of my physical love for her and of Trugachevsky and of everything being accomplished between them horror and rage compressed my heart but i began to reason with myself what nonsense said i to myself there are no grounds to go on there is nothing and there has been nothing how can i so degrade her and myself as to imagine such horrors he is a sort of hired violinist known as a worthless fellow and suddenly an honorable woman, the respected mother of a family, my wife. What absurdity! So it seemed to me, on the one hand. How could it help being so? It seemed on the other. How could that simplest and most intelligible thing help happening? That for the sake of which I married her, for the sake of which I have been living with her, what alone I wanted of her— and which others, including this musician, must therefore also want. He is an unmarried man, healthy. I remember how he crunched the gristle of a cutlet, and how greedily his red lips clung to the glass of wine. Well-fed, plump, and not merely unprincipled, but evidently making it a principle to accept the pleasures that present themselves. And they have music that most exquisite voluptuousness of the senses, as a link between them. What, then, could make him refrain? She? But who is she? She was, and still is, a mystery. I don't know her. I only know her as an animal. And nothing can or should restrain an animal. Only then did I remember their faces that evening when, after the Kreutzer Sonata, they played some impassioned little piece, I don't remember by whom, impassioned to the point of obscenity. How dared I go away, I asked myself, remembering their faces. Was it not clear that everything had happened between them that evening? Was it not evident already then that there was not only no barrier between them, but that they both— "'and she chiefly felt a certain measure of shame "'after what had happened. "'I remember her weak, piteous, and beatific smile "'as she wiped the perspiration from her flushed face "'when I came up to the piano. "'Already then they avoided looking at one another, "'and only at supper, "'when he was pouring out some water for her, "'they glanced at each other with the vestige of a smile. "'I now recalled with horror the glance, and the scarcely perceptible smile I had then caught. "'Yes, it is all over,' said one voice, and immediately the other voice said something entirely different. "'Something has come over you. It can't be that it is so,' said the other voice. I felt uncanny, lying in the dark, and I struck a light and felt a kind of terror in that little room with its yellow wallpaper.' I lit a cigarette, and, as always happens when one's thoughts go round and round in a circle of insoluble contradictions, I smoked, taking one cigarette after another in order to befog myself so as not to see those contradictions. I did not sleep all night, and at five in the morning, having decided that I could not continue in such a state of tension, I rose, woke the caretaker who attended me, and sent him to get the horses. I sent a note to the council, saying that I had been recalled to Moscow on urgent business, and asking that one of the members should take my place. At eight o'clock I got into my trap, and started. Chapter 25 The conductor entered, and seeing that our candle had burnt down, put it out, without supplying a fresh one. The day was dawning, Poznishev was silent, but sighed deeply all the time the conductor was in the carriage. He continued his story only after the conductor had gone out, and in the semi-darkness of the carriage only the rattle of the windows of the moving carriage and the rhythmic snoring of the clerk could be heard. In the half-light of dawn I could not see Pozneshev's face at all, but only heard his voice becoming ever more and more excited and full of suffering. I had to travel twenty-four miles by road and eight hours by rail. It was splendid driving. It was frosty autumn weather, bright and sunny. The roads were in that condition when the tires leave their dark imprint on them, you know. They were smooth, the light brilliant, and the air invigorating. It was pleasant driving in the Tarantas. When it grew lighter, and I had started, I felt easier. Looking at the houses, the fields, and the passers-by, I forgot where I was going. Sometimes I felt that I was simply taking a drive, and that nothing of what was calling me back had taken place. This oblivion was peculiarly enjoyable. When I remembered where I was going to, I said to myself, "'We shall see when the time comes. I must not think about it.' When we were halfway an incident occurred which detained me, and still further distracted my thoughts. The Tarantas broke down and had to be repaired. That breakdown had a very important effect, for it caused me to arrive in Moscow at midnight, instead of at seven o'clock as I had expected, and to reach home between twelve and one, as I missed the express and had to travel by an ordinary train. Going to fetch a cart— having the tarantas mended, settling up, tea at the inn, a talk with the innkeeper, all this still further diverted my attention. It was twilight before all was ready, and I started again. By night it was even pleasanter driving than during the day. There was a new moon, a slight frost, still good roads, good horses, and a jolly driver, and as I went on I enjoyed it, hardly thinking at all of what lay before me. Or perhaps I enjoyed it just because I knew what awaited me, and was saying goodbye to the joys of life. But that tranquil mood, that ability to suppress my feelings, ended with my drive. As soon as I entered the train, something entirely different began. That eight-hour journey in a railway carriage was something dreadful, which I shall never forget all my life whether it was that having taken my seat in the carriage I vividly imagined myself as having already arrived, or that railway travelling had such an exciting effect on people. At any rate, from the moment I sat down in the train I could no longer control my imagination, and with extraordinary vividness which inflamed my jealousy it painted incessantly, one after another, pictures of what had gone on in my absence." of how she had been false to me. I burnt with indignation, anger, and a peculiar feeling of intoxication with my own humiliation as I gazed at those pictures, and I could not tear myself away from them. I could not help looking at them, could not efface them, and could not help evoking them. That was not all. The more I gazed at those imaginary pictures the stronger grew my belief in their reality. The vividness with which they presented themselves to me seemed to serve as proof that what I imagined was real. It was as if some devil against my will invented and suggested to me the most terrible reflections. An old conversation I had had with Trukhachevsky's brother came to my mind, and in a kind of ecstasy I rent my heart with that conversation— Making it refer to Trukhachevsky and my wife. That had occurred long before, but I recalled it. Trukhachevsky's brother, I remember, in reply to a question whether he frequented houses of ill fame, had said that a decent man would not go to places where there was danger of infection and it was dirty and nasty, since he could always find a decent woman. And now his brother had found my wife. True. She is not in her first youth, has lost a side tooth, and there is a slight puffiness about her, but it can't be helped. One has to take advantage of what one can get, I imagined him to be thinking. Yes, it is condescending of him to take her for his mistress, I said to myself. And she is safe. No, it is impossible, I thought, horror-struck. There is nothing of the kind, nothing— There are not even any grounds for suspecting such things. Didn't she tell me that the very thought that I could be jealous of him was degrading to her? Yes, but she is lying. She is always lying, I exclaimed, and everything began anew. There were only two other people in the carriage, an old woman and her husband, both very taciturn, and even they got out at one of the stations, and I was quite alone. I was like a caged animal. Now I jumped up and went to the window. Now I began to walk up and down, trying to speed the carriage up. But the carriage, with all its seats and windows, went jolting on in the same way, just as ours does. Posneshev jumped up, took a few steps, and sat down again. Oh, I am afraid, afraid of railway carriages. I am seized with horror. Yes, it is awful, he continued. I said to myself, I will think of something else. Suppose I think of the innkeeper where I had tea, and there in my mind's eye appears the innkeeper with his long beard and his grandson, a boy of the age of my vasya. He will see how the musician kisses his mother, what will happen in his poor soul. But what does she care? She loves... And again, the same thing rose up in me. No, no, I will think about the inspection of the district hospital. Oh, yes, about the patient who complained of the doctor yesterday. The doctor has a mustache like Trukachovsky's, and how impudent he is. They both deceived me when he said he was leaving Moscow, and it began afresh. Everything I thought of had some connection with them. I suffered dreadfully. The chief cause of the suffering was my ignorance, my doubt, and the contradictions within me. My not knowing whether I ought to love or hate her. My suffering was of a strange kind. I felt a hateful consciousness of my humiliation and of his victory, but a terrible hatred for her. It will not do to put an end to myself and leave her— She must at least suffer to some extent, and at least understand that I have suffered, I said to myself. I got out at every station to divert my mind. At one station, I saw some people drinking, and I immediately drank some vodka. Beside me stood a Jew who was also drinking. He began to talk, and to avoid being alone in my carriage, I went with him into his dirty third-class carriage Reeking with smoke and bespattered with shells of sunflower seeds. There I sat down beside him, and he chattered a great deal and told anecdotes. I listened to him, but could not take in what he was saying because I continued to think about my own affairs. He noticed this and demanded my attention. Then I rose and went back to my carriage. I must think it over, I said to myself is what I suspect true, and is there any reason for me to suffer? I sat down, wishing to think it over calmly, but immediately, instead of calm reflection, the same thing began again. Instead of reflection, pictures and fancies. How often I have suffered like this, I said to myself, recalling former similar attacks of jealousy and afterwards, it all ended in nothing. So it will be now, perhaps. Yes, certainly it will. I shall find her calmly asleep. She will wake up, be pleased to see me, and by her words and looks, I shall know that there has been nothing, and that this is all nonsense. Oh, how good that would be! But no, that has happened too often, and won't happen again now, some voice seemed to say. "'and it began again. "'Yes, that was where the punishment lay. "'I wouldn't take a young man to a lock hospital "'to knock the hankering after women out of him, "'but into my soul, "'to see the devils that were rending it. "'What was terrible, you know, "'was that I considered myself "'to have a complete right to her body, "'as if it were my own, "'and yet at the same time "'I felt I could not control that body.' that it was not mine, and she could dispose of it as she pleased, and that she wanted to dispose of it not as I wished her to. And I could do nothing either to her or to him. He, like Vanka the steward, could sing a song before the gallows of how he kissed the sugared lips and so forth, and he would triumph. If she has not yet done it, but wishes to, and I know that she does wish to, it is still worse. It would be better if she had done it, and I knew it, so that there would be an end to this uncertainty. I could not have said what it was I wanted. I wanted her not to desire that which she was bound to desire. It was utter insanity. Chapter 26 At the last station but one, when the conductor had been to collect the tickets— I gathered my things together and went out onto the brake platform, and the consciousness that the crisis was at hand still further increased my agitation. I felt cold, and my jaw trembled so that my teeth chattered. I automatically left the terminus with the crowd, took a cab, got in, and drove off. I rode looking at the few passers-by, the night watchman, and the shadows of my trap thrown by the street lamps, now in front and now behind me, and did not think of anything. When we had gone about half a mile, my feet felt cold, and I remembered that I had taken off my woolen stockings on the train and put them in my satchel. Where is the satchel? Is it here? Yes. And my wicker trunk? I remembered that I had entirely forgotten about my luggage— But finding that I had the luggage ticket, I decided that it was not worthwhile going back for it, and so continued my way. Try now as I will, I cannot recall my state of mind at the time. What did I think? What did I want? I don't know at all. All I remember is a consciousness that something dreadful and very important in my life was imminent. Whether that important event occurred because I thought it would or whether I had a presentiment of what was to happen, I don't know. It may even be that after what has happened, all the foregoing moments have acquired a certain gloom in my mind. I drove up to the front porch. It was past midnight. Some cabmen were waiting in front of the porch, expecting from the fact that there were lights in the windows to get fares. The lights were in our flat, in the dancing room and drawing room. Without considering why it was still light in our windows so late, I went upstairs in the same state of expectation of something dreadful, and rang. Agor, a kind, willing, but very stupid footman, opened the door. The first thing my eyes fell on in the hall was a man's cloak, hanging on the stand with other outdoor coats. I ought to have been surprised, but was not, for I had expected it that's it, I said to myself. When I asked Agor who the visitor was, and he named Trukachovsky, I inquired whether there was anyone else. He replied, nobody, sir. I remember that he replied in a tone as if he wanted to cheer me, and dissipate my doubts of there being anybody else there. So it is, so it is, I seemed to be saying to myself. And the children— All well, heaven be praised, in bed, long ago. I could not breathe, and could not check the trembling of my jaw. Yes, so it is not as I thought. I used to expect a misfortune, but things used to turn out all right, and in the usual way. Now it is not as usual, but is all as I pictured to myself. I thought it was only fancy, but here it is, all real." Here it all is. I almost began to sob, but the devil immediately suggested to me, Cry, be sentimental, and they will get away quietly. You will have no proof, and will continue to suffer and doubt all your life. And my self-pity immediately vanished, and a strange sense of joy arose in me, that my torture would now be over, and that now I could punish her, could get rid of her, and could vent my anger. And I gave vent to it. I became a beast, a cruel and cunning beast. Don't, I said to Agor, who was about to go to the drawing room. Here is my luggage ticket. Take a cab as quick as you can and go get my luggage. Go. He went down the passage to fetch his overcoat. Afraid that he might alarm them, I went as far as his little room, and waited while he put on his overcoat. From the drawing-room, beyond another room, one could hear voices, and the clatter of knives and plates. They were eating, and had not heard the bell. If only they don't come out now, thought I. Agor put on his overcoat, which had an astrakhan collar, and went out. I locked the door after him, and felt creepy when I knew I was alone, and must act at once. How, I did not yet know. I only knew that all was now over, that there could be no doubt as to her guilt, and that I should punish her immediately, and end my relations with her. Previously I had doubted, and had thought, perhaps after all it's not true, perhaps I am mistaken, but now it was so no longer. "'It was all irrevocably decided. "'Without my knowledge, she is alone with him, at night. "'That is a complete disregard of everything. "'Or worse still, it is intentional boldness and impudence in crime "'that the boldness may serve as a sign of innocence. "'All is clear. There is no doubt. "'I only feared one thing, "'their parting hastily, inventing some fresh lie.' and thus depriving me of clear evidence and of the possibility of proving the fact. So as to catch them more quickly, I went on tiptoe to the dancing-room where they were, not through the drawing-room, but through the passage and nurseries. In the first nursery slept the boys. In the second nursery, the nurse moved and was about to wake, and I imagined to myself what she would think when she knew all and such pity for myself seized me at that thought, that I could not restrain my tears. And not to wake the children, I ran on tiptoe into the passage, and on into my study, where I fell sobbing on the sofa. I, an honest man, I, the son of my parents, I, who have all my life dreamt of the happiness of married life, I, a man who was never unfaithful to her, and now, Five children, and she is embracing a musician because he has red lips. No, she is not a human being. She is a bitch. An abominable bitch. In the next room to her children whom she has all her life pretended to love. And writing to me as she did. Throwing herself so barefacedly on his neck. But what do I know? Perhaps she long ago carried on with the footman. "'and so got the children, who are considered mine. "'Tomorrow I should have come back, "'and she would have met me with her fine coiffure, "'with her elegant waist, and her indolent, graceful movements. "'I saw all her attractive, hateful face, "'and that beast of jealousy would forever have sat in my heart, "'lacerating it. "'What will the nurse think? "'And Agor, and poor little Lisa. "'She already understands something.' Ah, that impudence, those lies, and that animal sensuality which I know so well, I said to myself. I tried to get up, but could not. My heart was beating so that I could not stand on my feet. Yes, I shall die of a stroke. She will kill me. That is just what she wants. What is killing to her? But no, that would be too advantageous for her, and I will not give her that pleasure. "'Yes, here I sit while they eat and laugh, and—' "'Yes, though she was no longer in her first freshness, "'he did not disdain her. "'For in spite of that, she is not bad-looking, "'and above all, she is at any rate not dangerous "'to his precious health. "'And why did I not throttle her then?' I said to myself, "'recalling the moment when, the week before, "'I drove her out of my study and hurled things about.' I vividly recalled the state I had then been in. I not only recalled it, but again felt the need to strike and destroy that I had felt then. I remember how I wished to act, and how all considerations except those necessary for action went out of my head. I entered into that condition when an animal, or a man, under the influence of physical excitement at a time of danger, acts with precision and deliberation but without losing a moment, and always with a single definite aim in view. The first thing I did was to take off my boots and in my socks approach the sofa on the wall above which guns and daggers were hung. I took down a curved Damascus dagger that had never been used and was very sharp. I drew it out of its scabbard. I remember the scabbard fell behind the sofa and I remember thinking, I must find it afterwards, or it will get lost. Then I took off my overcoat, which I was still wearing, and stepping softly in my socks, I went there. Chapter 27 Having crept up stealthily to the door, I suddenly opened it. I remember the expression of their faces. I remember that expression because it gave me a painful pleasure. It was an expression of terror. That was just what I wanted. I shall never forget the look of desperate terror that appeared on both their faces the first instant they saw me. He, I think, was sitting at the table, but on seeing or hearing me he jumped to his feet and stood with his back to the cupboard. His face expressed nothing but quite unmistakable terror. Her face, too, expressed terror, but there was something else besides. If it had expressed only terror, perhaps what happened might not have happened. But on her face there was, or at any rate, so it seemed to me at the first moment, also an expression of regret and annoyance that love's raptures and her happiness with him had been disturbed. It was as if she wanted nothing, but that her present happiness should not be interfered with. These expressions remained on their faces but an instant. The look of terror on his changed immediately to one of inquiry. Might he, or might he not, begin lying? If he might, he must begin at once. If not, something else would happen. But what? He looked inquiringly at her face. On her face the look of vexation and regret changed as she looked at him, so it seemed to me to one of solicitude for him. For an instant, I stood in the doorway, holding the dagger behind my back. At that moment, he smiled, and in a ridiculously indifferent tone remarked, And we have been having some music. What a surprise, she began, falling into his tone. But neither of them finished. The same fury I had experienced the week before overcame me. Again, I felt that need of destruction, violence, and a transport of rage, and yielded to it. Neither finished what they were saying. That something else began which he had feared, and which immediately destroyed all they were saying. I rushed towards her, still hiding the dagger that he might not prevent my striking her in the side under her breast. I selected that spot from the first— Just as I rushed at her, he saw it, and, a thing I never expected of him, seized me by the arm and shouted, "'Think what you are doing! Help! Someone!' I snatched my arm away and rushed at him in silence. His eyes met mine, and he suddenly grew as pale as a sheet to his very lips. His eyes flashed in a peculiar way, and, what again I had not expected, he darted under the piano— and out at the door. I was going to rush after him, but a weight hung on my left arm. It was she. I tried to free myself, but she hung on yet more heavily and would not let me go. This unexpected hindrance, the weight, and her touch which was loathsome to me, inflamed me still more. I felt that I was quite mad and that I must look frightful, and this delighted me. I swung my left arm with all my might, and my elbow hit her straight in the face. She cried out and let go my arm. I wanted to run after him, but remembered that it is ridiculous to run after one's wife's lover in one's socks, and I did not wish to be ridiculous, but terrible. In spite of the fearful frenzy I was in, I was all the time aware of the impression I might produce on others and was even partly guided by that impression. I turned towards her. She fell on the couch, and holding her hand to her bruised eyes, looked at me. Her face showed fear and hatred of me, the enemy, as a rat's does when one lifts the trap in which it has been caught. At any rate, I saw nothing in her expression but this fear and hatred of me. It was just the fear and hatred of me which would be evoked by love for another. But still, I might perhaps have restrained myself and not done what I did had she remained silent. But she suddenly began to speak and to catch hold of the hand in which I held the dagger. Come to yourself. What are you doing? What is the matter? There has been nothing, nothing, nothing. I swear it. I might still have hesitated, but those last words of hers, from which I concluded just the opposite, that everything had happened, called forth a reply, and the reply had to correspond to the temper to which I had brought myself, which continued to increase, and had to go on increasing. Fury, too, has its laws. Don't lie, you wretch, I howled and seized her arm with my left hand, but she wrenched herself away. Then, still without letting go of the dagger, I seized her by the throat with my left hand, threw her backwards, and began throttling her. What a firm neck it was! She seized my hand with both hers, trying to pull it away from her throat, and as if I had only waited for that, I struck her with all my might, with the dagger, in the side, below the ribs. When people say they don't remember what they do in a fit of fury, it is rubbish, falsehood. I remembered everything, and did not for a moment lose consciousness of what I was doing. The more frenzied I became, the more brightly the light of consciousness burnt in me, so that I could not help knowing everything I did. I knew what I was doing. Every second. I cannot say that I knew beforehand what I was going to do, but I knew what I was doing when I did it, and even I think a little before, as if to make repentance possible and to be able to tell myself that I could stop. I knew I was hitting below the ribs and that the dagger would enter. At the moment I did it, I knew I was doing an awful thing, such as I had never done before, which would have terrible consequences. But that consciousness passed like a flash of lightning, and the deed immediately followed the consciousness. I realized the action with extraordinary clearness. I felt and remember the momentary resistance of her corset and of something else, and then the plunging of the dagger into something soft. She seized the dagger with her hands and cut them, but could not hold it back. For a long time afterwards, in prison, when the moral change had taken place in me, I thought of that moment, recalled what I could of it, and considered it. I remembered that for an instant, only an instant, before the action, I had a terrible consciousness that I was killing, had killed, a defenseless woman, my wife. I remember the horror of that consciousness, and conclude from that, and even dimly remember that having plunged the dagger in, I pulled it out immediately, trying to remedy what had been done and to stop it. I stood for a second, motionless, waiting to see what would happen and whether it could be remedied. She jumped to her feet and screamed, Nurse! He has killed me! Having heard the noise, the nurse was standing by the door. I continued to stand waiting, and not believing the truth, but the blood rushed from under her corset. Only then did I understand that it could not be remedied, and I immediately decided that it was not necessary it should be, that I had done what I wanted and had to do. I waited till she fell down, and the nurse, crying, Good God, ran to her, and only then did I throw away the dagger. "'and leave the room. "'I must not be excited. "'I must know what I am doing,' I said to myself, "'without looking at her and at the nurse. "'The nurse was screaming, calling for the maid. "'I went down the passage, sent the maid, "'and went into my study. "'What am I to do now?' I asked myself, "'and immediately realized what it must be. "'On entering the study, I went straight to the wall,' took down a revolver, and examined it. It was loaded. I put it on the table. Then I picked up the scabbard from behind the sofa and sat down there. I sat thus for a long time. I did not think of anything or call anything to mind. I heard the sounds of bustling outside. I heard someone drive up, then someone else, Then I heard and saw Agor bring into the room my wicker trunk he had fetched, as if anyone wanted that. Have you heard what has happened? I asked. Tell the yard porter to inform the police. He did not reply and went away. I rose, locked the door, got out my cigarettes and matches, and began to smoke. I had not finished the cigarette before sleep overpowered me. I must have slept for a couple of hours. I remember dreaming that she and I were friendly together, that we had quarreled, but were making it up. There was something rather in the way, but we were friends. I was awakened by someone knocking at the door. That is the police, I thought, waking up. I have committed murder, I think. But perhaps it is she, and nothing has happened. There was again a knock at the door. I did not answer, but was trying to solve the question whether it had happened or not. Yet, it had. I remembered the resistance of the corset, and the plunging in of the dagger, and a cold shiver ran down my back. Yes, it has. Yes. And now I must do away with myself too, I thought. But I thought this, knowing that I should not kill myself. Still, I got up and took the revolver in my hand. But it is strange. I remember how I had many times been near suicide. How even that day on the railway, it had seemed easy. Easy just because I thought how it would stagger her. Now, I was not only unable to kill myself, but even to think of it. Why should I do it? I asked myself. And there was no reply there was more knocking at the door. First, I must find out who is knocking. There will still be time for this. I put down the revolver and covered it with a newspaper. I went to the door and unlatched it. It was my wife's sister, a kindly stupid widow. Vasya, what is this? And her ever-ready tears began to flow. What do you want? I asked rudely. I knew I ought not to be rude to her, and had no reason to be, but I could think of no other tone to adopt. Vasya, she is dying. Ivan Zakarich says so. Ivan Zakarich was her doctor and adviser. Is he here? I asked, and all my animosity against her surged up again. Well, what of it? Vasya, go to her. Oh, how terrible it is, said She? Shall I go to her? I asked myself, and immediately decided that I must go to her. Probably it is always done, when a husband has killed his wife, as I had, he must certainly go to her. If that is what is done, then I must go, I said to myself. If necessary, I shall always have time, I reflected, referring to the shooting of myself, and I went to her. Now we shall have phrases, grimaces, but I will not yield to them, I thought. Wait, I said to her sister, it is silly without boots. Let me at least put on slippers. Chapter 28 Wonderful to say, when I left my study and went through the familiar rooms, the hope that nothing had happened again awoke in me. But the smell of that doctor's nastiness— Iodiform and carbolic took me aback. No, it had happened. Going down the passage past the nursery, I saw little Lisa. She looked at me with frightened eyes. It even seemed to me that all the five children were there and all looked at me. I approached the door, and the maid opened it from inside for me and passed out. The first thing that caught my eye was her light gray dress, thrown on a chair, and all stained black with blood. She was lying on one of the twin beds—on mine, because it was easier to get at—with her knees raised. She lay in a very sloping position, supported by pillows, with her dressing jacket unfastened. Something had been put on the wound. There was a heavy smell of iotaform in the room. What struck me first and most of all was her swollen and bruised face, blue on part of the nose and under the eyes. This was the result of the blow with my elbow when she had tried to hold me back. There was nothing beautiful about her, but something repulsive as it seemed to me. I stopped on the threshold. "'Go up to her, do,' said her sister. "'Yes. No doubt she wants to confess.' "'I thought. "'Shall I forgive her? "'Yes, she is dying and may be forgiven, I thought, "'trying to be magnanimous. "'I went up close to her. "'She raised her eyes to me with difficulty. "'One of them was black, "'and with an effort said falteringly, "'You've got your way. "'Killed.' "'And through the look of suffering "'and even the nearness of death,' Her face had the old expression of cold animal hatred that I knew so well. I shan't let you have the children all the same. She, her sister, will take. Of what to me was the most important matter, her guilt, her faithlessness, she seemed to consider it beneath her to speak. Yes, look and admire what you've done she said, looking towards the door, and she sobbed. In the doorway stood her sister with the children. Yes, see what you have done. I looked at the children and at her bruised, disfigured face, and for the first time I forgot myself, my rights, my pride, and for the first time saw a human being in her and so insignificant did all that had offended me, all my jealousy, appear, and so important what I had done, that I wished to fall with my face to her hand and say, Forgive me, but dared not do so. She lay silent with her eyes closed, evidently too weak to say more. Then her disfigured face trembled and puckered, She pushed me feebly away. Why did it all happen? Why? Forgive me, I said. Forgive? That's all rubbish. Only not to die, she cried, raising herself, and her glittering eyes were bent on me. Yes, you have had your way. I hate you. Ah, she cried, evidently already in delirium and frightened at something. Shoot! I'm not afraid! Only kill everyone! He is gone! Gone! After that, the delirium continued all the time. She did not recognize anyone. She died towards noon that same day. Before that, they had taken me to the police station, and from there to prison. There, during the eleven months I remained awaiting trial, I examined myself, and my past, and understood it. I began to understand it on the third day. On the third day, they took me there. He was going on, but unable to repress his sobs, he stopped. When he recovered himself, he continued. I only began to understand when I saw her in her coffin. He gave a sob but immediately continued hurriedly. Only when I saw her dead face did I understand all that I had done. I realized that I, I had killed her, that it was my doing that she, living, moving, warm, had now become motionless, waxen, and cold, and that this could never, anywhere, or by any means be remedied. He who has not lived through it cannot understand. Oh! He cried several times and then was silent. We sat in silence a long while. He kept sobbing and trembling as he sat opposite me without speaking. His face had grown narrow and elongated and his mouth seemed to stretch right across it. Yes, yes, he suddenly said. Had I then known what I know now, everything would have been different. Nothing would have induced me to marry her. I should not have married at all. Again, we remained silent for a long time. Well, forgive me. He turned away from me and lay down on the seat, covering himself up with his plaid. At the station where I had to get out, It was at eight o'clock in the morning. I went up to him to say goodbye. Whether he was asleep or only pretended to be, at any rate, he did not move. I touched him with my hand. He uncovered his face, and I could see he had not been asleep. Goodbye, I said, holding out my hand. He gave me his and smiled slightly, but so piteously, that I felt ready to weep. Yes, forgive me, he said, repeating the same words with which he had concluded his story.